Striving and Thriving is the career development podcast inspiring you to make some bold changes. It's time to sweat the big stuff. Each week, we speak to industry figureheads at different stages of their journey to understand what it takes to successfully manage your career. I'm your host, Laura Johnson, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Mitch King, Head of Talent Acquisition. To get us started, can you tell us a little bit about your career background and your family? Career background. So, well, I left school. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I just started doing as a dishwasher to start off with, admin. And I basically got into recruitment because a couple of those admin jobs, I got placed by recruiters. I was like, oh, that seems like a nice thing to be able to do to put people in jobs. I'd studied marketing and while looking for a junior marketing role, I found a job recruiting in the sort of marketing advertising space. So I ended up staying with that agency for 12 years. Everyone tells me, particularly in recruitment, is a very long time. And then 12 years was too long. I, I went from, I started there as a junior admin consultant and left as essentially the managing director for the last sort of three months, which I didn't enjoy, <laughs> and um, made the decision to what I really wanted to do was I really liked the tech space. I really liked more of the hands-on recruitment side rather than P&L statements and licences and that sort of thing. So, yeah, left without a job, took myself to market, ended up at Linktree, and I've been here for just over two years now. So started as their first talent acquisition manager. Started when we were 18 people two years ago. And now the talent team is about 12 people and the company is about 280 people. That's a huge period of growth. I wanted to But I guess before that, so 12 years at one place, you're right, is a long time, I think, no matter where you are, but particularly agency. I guess, can you talk a little bit about kind of how your roles progressed and how you went from being almost like bottom of the ladder to the top of the ladder within that time and what that kind of looked like? Yeah, I think definitely those first couple of years, I would say I was really typical junior consultant. It was just scraps were thrown at me. I was sort of trying to learn the ropes. Uh, there was then a point a manager sort of put me in charge of the contract, the freelance desk, and I seemed to really find my rhythm doing that and grew that sort of desk up. And then about, it's probably there for about four or five years, I was quite happy doing that, you know, regular billings, doing my job, I liked what I was doing. And then one of my managers pushed me into managing somebody else and that probably sort of kick-started the next sort of side. So I was managing just one, maybe up to two people for a few years. Then somebody in the company who was running a Melbourne office, I was in Sydney at the time, they left and I put my hand up to have a try at running my own sort of office. And that's probably what got me through that. That was in about the eight, nine-year period. And at that stage, I was, had one eye on long service leave at, at 10 years. Like, we still need to leave at nine years. You know, this is around the corner. Go to Melbourne, see how this goes. If it doesn't work out, yeah, oh, well. And, yeah, I took over a small team in Melbourne, about four people. Grew that to it was 12 or 13 by the time that I left, about four years later. So I was probably lucky that... Progression opportunities came up just at about the right time. I also would say that I had a boss for a long time who was quite good at, you know, every year in performance reviews, 
he would generally come to me and say, here's your pay rise. And I would go probably about what I was going to ask for. And it's like, cool, another year, you know, nothing dramatic came up that made me want to, to leave. And I think I'm someone who's always, I'm quite, working in recruitment, you get to see a lot of what decisions correct and incorrect people make in their career. Yeah, good point. <laughs> I think one thing I learned from it was not to chase the greener pastures. You know, someone would approach me and say, hey, work at this company, do X, Y, and Z. It's like A lot of people often, I think they look at, okay, that's what I could get, another 20 grand, but it's less common for them to look at what am I leaving behind. And I, I felt like, you know, people that I liked had a good level of autonomy and, you know, responsibilities and I wasn't chasing anything. But then as soon as it sort of like came to that 12-year point and I knew I'm not enjoying this, I don't want to do this anymore, it was affected my mental health quite quite badly towards the end. And I've sort of made a decision that this has to change. Like this is the thing that's ruining my mental health. So I'm going to change this thing and then figure it out. And that was a big, uh, took a while to make the decision. Felt, you know, we've got two kids, mortgage, that sort of stuff, leaving a job without a job, but probably the best decision that I've made career was. Yeah, it sounds it based on the, the next bit that I was going to ask you about. But a really brave decision. So I play on that in terms of, like you say, not only recognizing what impact it was having, because sometimes that's really tough to recognize. But then, like you say, leaving without a job is, is tough. But yeah, absolutely the right thing to do. So then Linktree, going from just you to the huge team that you've built now, that must have been a pretty incredible journey too. Yeah, it's somebody, um, we had somebody new in the business that I met last week ask me, what's it like to start in the first 20 and be here now we're 280? I started at Linktree literally when COVID started. So the last day of my last job, my farewell drinks, they were measuring distance between us at the pub. It was the first time they'd introduced that. And then I started Linktree on Monday, fully remote. And, you know, you're only sort of meeting people over Zoom. And in last week, I was in Sydney for a couple of days. And that was the first time in two years I'd worked in an office with other people at Linktree. So it's not like you have this experience of going into an office of 20 people and then an office of 300 people. You don't quite get that experience. I think it's cliche for everyone. It's gone so quick, you know, to sometimes it's hard to remember that 20, 30, 40, 50 people stage. And I think when you look at some of the, you know, so it was two years ago, I think at the start of last year, we were 50 people. In November, December last year, we were like 180. So some of it's come in really yeah. you know, quick waves and there was only two of us, the third person joining the TA team in just over a year ago. So you look at it now and go, okay, 12 in TA, 280, that's fine, but that's sort of only what we've just become. So, yeah, it's been easily the best job that I've had, best company that, that I've worked for, as you sort of said. I mean, in hindsight, easily the best decision, you know, that I made, even though it was scary. And I think something I tell people a lot is I left a lot of money behind to make that move as well. Being a manager in agency recruitment versus an internal TA, they're quite different ones, but I purposely went to market to the role I wanted to do and not looking at the, the money and was way happier. I mean, I would still love more money. Everyone would want to, but, yeah, I think the money sort of, it's funny how you can sort of adapt a bit less, stop doing gym memberships. Yeah. I, I relocated last year as well, so I now live in the Gold Coast and 
working from home, I probably save ten dollars a day not buying coffee. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, no public transport. So things can tend to even out. My the rent I was paying in Melbourne was way more than what I paid in mortgage up here. So the the difference in earnings is not been easy to offset, but not as hard as what it seems like when you go um, taking a 50 grand pay cut or something like that. Um, once you factor in tax and all these little expenses, you can get there. Absolutely. And I think going back to what you're saying, it's like you can't put a price on your mental health, right? All the time with family or any of the other things. So yeah, okay, it seems huge. And in one lump sum, that's really scary. But like you say, once you actually factor it all in and work it out, it's really manageable. And it, it's obviously been the right thing to do. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we might end up having a mental health episode if we <laughs> sort of open this door. But the, I had, I had a realisation one day that I, it was really the, the job that was the stem of, say, 90% of the, the unhappiness. And just go, well, I've got, I was earning good money, but I'm looking at that going, I've got this money, but I'm so unhappy. What's the point? And but my daughter at the time would have only been maybe about two or under two. And the, the day that I sort of made the decision, I, I'd finished work for the year, I think. I'd gone out, gone to the gym, came home, still feeling really flat. Came to the door, she ran to the door, smiling, happy to see me, and I just felt nothing. And that was the sort of point where I was like, I, I knew in the back of my mind, I'm like, you should be feeling happiness. And that's where I decided, I was like, this is, I'm done. Resign, you know, whatever date it was going to be. But that's the time I made the decision up and no regrets. No, you've been on an incredible journey ever since. Yeah, well, I think the, the timing of that was interesting as well because I think people that, like when I started Linktree versus my previous role, they probably have two really different perceptions of me, mm. like the miserable guy fading out from one company who then got better in a relatively short period of time, joined the company, and like that guy seems, what I would imagine people would be like, he seems like he's happy enough, <laughs> doing okay. But you ask the people three months before, they're like, that poor bloke, you know, <laughs> wasn't sleeping, wasn't sort of having any fun. So I tried to put myself on the other side, wonder what their sort of that different perception was for two different, you know, parties. But you know, I've said it a few times now, yeah, I, I feel like I fluked it to a degree because I also resigned before COVID. That was a total unknown thing at the time to then go into new sort of job employment in the talent market, people were losing their jobs left, right, and centre. So, yeah, I felt really lucky, really fortunate, and kept going from there. I think just on it. So, when you left and you said you, you, you know, you went for the role you really wanted, what was it about that internal TA role that really attracted you? The things that I liked doing the most in recruitment, I used to get criticised a lot because I would never celebrate when I made placements because. In recruitment, you make placements, that's money, you make targets. I sort of became, like the stuff that I really enjoyed doing was speaking to people, conveying the story of the employer to that person, matching what somebody was looking for with what something actually is. And I found that really hard to do from an agency perspective because you're always a third party, you're always an onlooker. If someone says to you, What's it like working there? You can only tell sort of secondhand stories where if I sort of go in and I, I need to believe it first, I can't sell with truths. I'm really bad at that. But if I believe it, I think I'm a lot better at communicating that to people and they say, well, the job description said this or the career page says that. And like, it does and it's true, but let me give you these examples. Let me tell you 
about how I relocated or the flexibility that I have with my kids and my work. Those elements of the job, as well as being more tech-focused, I've recruited in creative and digital and anything to more the digital and tech side was always what I preferred. And I just have this, I've always had an interest in anything sort of tech, a new platform, you know, the first time like an Uber comes out, I'm like, yeah, let me try this. How does this work? So being close to that, being able to work, when you're in recruitment agencies, you, most of the time you're working with just other recruiters, <laughs> which anyone in recruitment will say, that's, <laughs> that's the bad idea. But you work in a product company like Linktree and you get to meet with engineers and product managers and product designers, and there's so much more diversity of thought. You get to speak to someone and go, hey, what do you think about this from a non TA and non-recruitment perspective. But in a, recruitment agencies, it's just you're all just sitting around talking about the perspective of recruiters. Take my offer. Don't ghost me. You know, it's, <laughs> it's that big. So there was a few of those things that I was really sort of chasing a combination of tech, being inside the company and not being transactionary. You bring someone into the company and you get to see them work out or if they don't work out you get a little bit more sort of exposure insight as to why and sort of improve on that and iterate of it um, and no offense to anyone on the agency side in that sort of contingency recruitment model but that to me i found it too hard to sell in the end that without proper buy-in that you could be that plug and play recruitment consultants in title for me like can, by the definition of what a consultant does most recruitment consultants don't do that they don't come in and get full exposure and then understand the problem and fix the problem. More like recruitment agents is what probably they should be called more commonly. It, it's an inaccurate title for the majority of how it, it operates. And, yeah, there was a disconnect there with what I enjoyed doing. So I wanted to, yeah, try the enjoyment side first as opposed to the, the money, I think. Yeah. And I guess, like, just being so clear on what you wanted, but also even without a job, it was almost like, I guess if you'd tried it and it hadn't worked out, you'd have still learned a lesson and it would have pushed you onto something else. I guess it's just been super lucky that, all, you know, all your intuitions and everything was right. And you're like, yeah, you've learned where you are. Yeah, yeah luck um, definitely feels like, like part of it. I think because I had that long service leave, I had a bit of a, a safety buffer in, in financially and not everyone will have that. I've seen it a lot where people have a negative opinion when people leave jobs without another one lined up. You know, you work, you recruit someone, you've got a candidate that we like, why why did they leave with another job? And they're scrutinizing it. I, I just never understood that. Like, if you can financially afford to, it makes everything so much easier being able to interview, being open. The way I got the job at Linktree was by on LinkedIn saying, hey, I've made the decision, I'm now looking. And one of the founders came across that post and we had a conversation. So I can't do that if I haven't resigned. And to be honest, I, I was using the Linktree product. I didn't even realize it was an Australian product. I wouldn't have found them. They didn't have that job advertised. I wouldn't have thought to approach them, you know, about that. So, yeah, I recommend it to people if they can. I don't want to be held responsible if they then can't find the right job for six months, you know, and that's, that's a risk that you have to take. That's the scary part. But I've seen a lot of people who've done that and then accidentally turned into freelancers or consultants inside their own business and then that's worked out really well i think it's super brave to do it and i i know what you mean when people look at it negatively but i think it's a really brave decision 
But I also think it puts you in a really good mindset. So going back to exactly what you said, you're not jumping from something you don't like to something that looks better, right? You're making a really informed decision just based on that job, not on what you don't want necessarily in the current role that you're in. And I do think it brings a different mindset to that whole recruiting process. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to work out how we get rid of the negative connotations there. Yeah, but that's an interesting sort of problem to try to solve. The, the common perceptions, some of them, uh, you know, have never sort of understood. I mean, for another example is look at people who have short tenures in roles. And I think when that's a pattern over a long period of time, yes. But if someone, you're working with a client and you've got this great candidate and they look at the CV and so they've only been there three months, why are they looking to leave? Why are they so jumpy? That's a really common sort of automatic assumption. I would want to know, okay, like, yes, ask the question. If someone goes into a job, it's missold to them, that they, there's people they didn't meet in the interview process who are absolute nightmares to, to work for, the company's going through changes. The number of times I've seen people start jobs and the person that hired them has left in between starting and the new manager is a totally different person, mergers and acquisitions. There's, there's so many things that could happen. And then COVID's another really good example. They had to sort of, not so much at Linktree, but sort of say publicly, you need to factor this in for the next year or two. People lost jobs around this period of time. Please be mindful that this was a pandemic that we've never been through. And some of those people, I know personally as well, struggled to refine their feet. They lost confidence. Some of those markets like, you know, recruitment and TA markets were so dire for six, nine months that not just easy to just turn that switch back on and go, okay, now I'm, I'm okay again. It can be really quite devastating. But, yeah, these real um, quick unconscious bias, you know, assumptions that sometimes people make, it's not the only one to fix, but I don't know how to, this is probably like a worldwide, not just recruitment, but everyone's yeah, way of thinking. And probably more than a 25-minute podcast, but um, something we should definitely talk about more. Definitely. <laughs> I guess going back to your role in truth, when you started and there's you to having a team of 12, kind of how's your role progressed in that time? You know, it's interesting. I've only recently, very recently moved to being more hands-off and focusing on the people management, which is probably a mistake I made for too long trying to do both sides, trying to be a lead individual contributor and a people manager. It basically just means you're not doing anything really well and it just makes you more stressed. So as the team's grown, because it's grown quite quickly, it's sort of moved now to, you know, add in layers of management, have less direct reports and not try to work five to ten roles at once. It's funny, when I joined Linktree, you go through interview process, we're like, this role has managing no one at the start. Why would you be happy to do that when you've just been managing 13? And it was like, to be honest, it's not something that I strive for. I don't love managing people. What I've sort of realised, I didn't love managing people that job because I was, again, doing both sides. I was trying to be too much of everything or my role was sort of defined that way. So with the right sort of support, with the, the right sort of leads in place, the managers say, okay, see what you're trying to do, but it's not possible to have 11 direct reports, one, and then do one of their jobs on top of it. So that's probably how it's evolved. I think we want to see if you have nice evolve sooner, but that, that's also the thing with startups. You know, these things move <laughs> and grow quickly. You're often in the situation before you've had a chance to, to plan for it. 
so that's that's probably how it's evolved recently, and, and I think sort of allows me or giving me more time to try to be better at the the management side of things. I, I hope. As I said it's such a recent change that I wouldn't say I figured this all out, but time has been sort of my biggest enemy lately. I don't think anyone in a management or leadership position has figured it all out, whether they've been doing it two weeks or 20 years. Like, I think it's one of those that you're consistently learning and can consistently get better at. I think <laughs> there's just so many factors at play. It's, um, it's tough. Yeah, I think I, um, I'll, I'm really honest with people as well. I'll have imposter syndrome most minutes of my life. And you could definitely sort of go into that thinking another person who's in this management position will be doing X, Y, and Z so well. Again, sometimes maybe it's through recruitment and you meet people and you meet them from great companies and they speak about their managers or they are a manager and like, actually, you're still trying to figure this out as well. And you've got an MBA from Yale and, you know, on paper, you who I think would have this all figured out and you've got the same problems I do. And maybe a little bit older, I've sort of found some solstice in that it's not just you. I think I've said this to other people as well. I spoke to some juniors, some graduates at the start of the year or end of last year, um, and the piece of advice I gave them was 99% of people are trying to figure it out on the fly. (laughs) Like the number of people who actually really know what they're doing in their field is, I mean, I hope a lot of doctors, you know. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot that, you know, you see doctors who get, charged with negligence and doing things the wrong way or they become, they practice in different ways. Most of the time, the people who who you think or appear to be really under control just speak with the most confidence about what they're doing. Yeah. They're the most assured in their beliefs, whereas a lot of the smartest people I've met are the ones that sort of doubt themselves <laughs> and how they're doing things the, the most. But it's a wicked game where they, they chase each other in circle of being really good but not believing it. It was something I spoke to my coach about at some point when I was having a real, like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I must be terrible at my job because blah, blah, blah. And um, she basically said something very similar, but more eloquently than I'll put it now. And it was like, if you were really that bad, you wouldn't be questioning it. Like the fact that you're sitting questioning it and you're consistently wanting to work out how you can be better and do more shows that you have a baseline of knowledge to work from to be able to doubt yourself. And sometimes that's what we kind of take for granted, that actually if we were just being incompetent, we wouldn't be questioning it in the same way. I mean, these podcasts, for example, people, I've done a couple and I get asked to be a podcast and sometimes I'd say no because in my mind I think, who wants to hear me talk? And then you have to sort of think it through and go, they asked you. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's who. But that, that's like daily. That's for me, that's like every day. My internal voice continually tells me how shit I am and it's only sort of an older age that I've sort of learned to balance that with the facts yeah if you were that bad why do they ask you there's a lot of other people that want to be on podcasts and you know could be in this job or anything really no matter what I sort of touch I seem to have that sort of school of thought Mm -hmm. and the more I've sort of spoken about other people the more common I've found it to be then imposter syndrome is a sort of general I always read and get told a lot it's a very female thing yeah female tendency my theory is I think a lot of the men just aren't are willing to admit it as much. So I do find it really interesting and wonder how gendered it is. Or like you say, like how much of it is a bit of bravado in terms of like, I can't tell everybody that I don't think I know what I'm doing. 
and women are a little bit more open to being vulnerable. I don't know. It's an interesting one, though. Yeah, it's definitely like the psychology runs quite deep in these things. And I don't know, like I find that you'd have to ask the people that I, I manage or, or work with, but Jesus, even if I think about myself five years ago, I'd never be saying words like vulnerability is, is a strength, you know, things like that. It really, I was the stereotypical Australian male who just bottled everything up and tried to fix it. That's how I was raised. And that sort of became part of the same realisation. It's like what you're doing isn't working, so try something else. So when I resigned, I was really open to the people I was working with said, really unhappy, this is like killing me. And sort of after that, I was like, I feel a bit better and nothing bad happened. I'm just going to keep doing this until something bad happens. <laughs> and, yeah, the vulnerability, not being scared of it, I, I would maybe say now could be my, my strength. And not intentionally, but in both companies I've worked for, I've managed large teams of females, and I don't know if that plays into it. But, you know, large teams of females with, with not high turnover, things like that. I don't know. I grew up with two older sisters and most of my life raised by a single mum, so maybe I just picked up a lot of the, the tendencies through that environment. But I struggle with anyone really in life or in work who is being false yeah. to themselves, they're you know, outwardly using big words so that they feel like they know more than, than they do. I think, you know, the type of people I look to work with is more along the lines of, I've got no idea what this is, but do you want to try to work it out, you know, together? That makes it like, yeah, I've got no idea, but I'm sure we can figure this out. I think that goes back to your point earlier when you, you meet these people that on paper you think, oh my God, this person's almost quite intimidating. Like they look like they've got everything together. And I usually find that when you end up speaking to those people, they're usually the ones that first wants to admit that actually they don't really know. They're on a constant learning journey. They're consistently trying to improve. And they end up being the best discussions because of that, because they're saying, hey, look, I think it might be this, but do you want to have a crack and see if we can work it out together? There's none of this like, I know what I'm doing. This is it. And maybe that's, you know, why we're both in startups because it tends to be more of those people that are like, I've got a hypothesis that this thing might work. I've managed to convince a bunch of other people the same thing. Let's all try and work it out together. Yeah. But they're always my favorite people for that reason. And I think one, it's a really good reminder to us that actually, you know, no one's really got it all together. No one really knows what they're doing. It's just some people are braver than others when they admit it. Yeah. And maybe maybe some people do. Maybe they really, I think of different you know, whether it's software engineering or marketing and they have such academically sound understanding of their field that they've, they've got it under control. Mm-hmm. But the decisions that you make with that intelligence, how you deal with the people sort of around you, like there's so many other factors in, in that. It's almost sort of worry if someone comes to you going, I've got everything under control, I know everything, and I guess without giving away secrets in, in, in interviews, I feel like over the years of the people I've interviewed, there's almost two groups where you have someone who comes to you and says, this is why I'm so good. And let's not put them all in the same bucket, but most of the time they're not as good as the person who says, this is what I've done. And you decide if, you, if that's sort of good or I'll just let the results speak for yourself. But those sort of subtle approaches or languages um, I think you can sometimes sense in, in people. Uh, and I think it also goes there, like, past success doesn't indicate future success necessarily. 
like it's awesome if you have, but I think it goes back to exactly like how you approach it. And I think marketing in COVID is a great example. Right? Before COVID, I'm sure plenty of us marketers could turn around and say, okay, this is how, you know, event leads work, or this is how this works, or this is how that works. And COVID's completely thrown that up and messed it around. And we just still don't know how a bunch of stuff's going to work, right? So all the things that we know, and I think that's, again, just a good lesson to make sure that we're continually learning and we're not just going, oh, we did it this one way, this one time, and it really worked. So I'm just going to stick with that. Yeah. And there's so many, like, I marketed this way at this company, but I mean, as you know, marketing one brand to another, one product to another, different stage of their, their life cycles, totally different things. So maybe it's a false confidence. People are like, well, I did it once and it worked. So just continually do that <laughs> forever. But yeah, particularly in those startup environments, it's you need to be able to sort of look at what it is, where it is right now and continually adapt to it. I guess on that, what do you think has been your key to success or what's the skill sets that you think that you've brought from recruitment into your current role that have made you as successful as you have been over the last few years? I think for me, the success there was my comfort. We sort of speak about internally comfort and ambiguity. I've met a lot of people in TA who were like, okay, any process, any company you come into, this is how things get done. Was what my read on the situation was coming into this company, hadn't had a sort of proper sort of TA function before, but keen to see some results. I think, to be honest, maybe had a distrust for, for TA recruitment to begin with. Like instead of me sitting down and mapping out all these strategies and processes, I think I'm just going to go straight into finding people and getting the roles filled and then we'll work it out from there. So doing that without processes, totally fine with me. Can do everything on the fly. Met and worked with other people who that is like their worst nightmare. You know, we need to plan it before we do anything. Mm. I'll use analogies a lot. It's like I just started laying the bricks before I drew any blueprints and that I think served me well. The skills from recruitment are interesting one because I've thought about this bit recently. I know I've spoken to people a lot when interviewing that there's definitely some transferable skills. There's definitely a lot that are different to each other. Recruitment tends to be first and last stages. And that middle part is where a lot of goes wrong. I mean, the thing that gets brought up the most is my what I write on LinkedIn. That, People yeah. sort of think about that a lot. And I, someone asked me recently why I started doing it, and there was two reasons for it. The first was to help with attracting candidates. So I hope I don't ruin anyone's like of, of anything that I write, but <laughs> I, I recruited for companies that did branded content. I was speaking about this recently in regards to the Netflix series, the F1, the Drive to Survive, it's called. And quite a few females in that team, the company now have a sudden interest in the F1 and it stemmed from that show. And that was the sort of thing I was thinking, was like, well, if you're always just posting jobs or you're always just cold calling people, it's just such a uphill battle. I wonder if you could start writing content that's sometimes loosely joined, but just have that brand awareness, really. And people see that and they go, okay, like that post. What, what's Linktree? Uh, do they have jobs? All of a sudden, they're little flies in the spider web. And they, you know, sort of haven't realised it. And then for my own career opportunities, if and when at any time I was looking, it's like, well, these people who I haven't met have some sort of awareness of, of who I am because I've done that. So 
to bring that back, I think that content approach is something I've brought to to the role, and and that's how I try to more organically generate interest in the company and our roles, without it being just your typical job board, job ad, rinse and repeat. I love what you put on LinkedIn, but it always makes me feel like I just don't know how you find time to write it all. And I guess that probably that's probably something maybe you enjoy more than I do. Maybe that's part of it. But I look. As a founder, they always talk about personal brand. And, you know, you do such a good job. And it's one of those things that I always think, I really need to spend more time doing that. And um, I just don't know where you get the time to write it all. Because it's all fantastic. Like, I never read it and think, oh, that one feels rushed. Because um, that's how I feel sometimes when I read my own social posts. You kind of read it, you're like, that was great. Yeah, and I appreciate that. Cool. <laughs> but, like, you keep up with what's going on. And yeah, I love it. I get really awkward when people say nice things. So apologize <laughs> in advance. But I had this come up. And, and people ask me this question and I get worried about my response because I feel like I'm contributing to making them feel worse. <laughs> but most of what I write is under five minutes in what it takes me to do. Yeah. I'm often in bed on my phone sort of writing that. I, I think, and I've actually started to think about maybe <laughs> looking at teaching this because for a long time I, I said I don't have any process and I've, broken it down and I've realised that I sort of do in terms of I break up. I think some people, they sit down and go, I've got to write a post. Mm. So they try to write it all in one go. Yeah. I capture ideas when they come up and annoyingly they come up at the worst times, like just when I'm falling asleep in the shower to the point I thought about putting some sort of waterproof notepad in the shower because they all come to me then. And then I just refer to this list. And then sometimes they sit there for a really long time, over a year, and there's either an idea or a starting point. And until I can sort of marry them up, I don't sort of do anything. But I had no organisation for it. Like I couldn't tell you how many posts I've done in what categories. Sometimes I think I've, I've probably posted the same thing more than once, not realising it. <laughs> like I just don't have any sort of thing to it. So, yeah, I hope that was make you feel like worse but it might be a case of if in terms of having the time if I allocated a set time to write content I think I would struggle I sort of have to do and this maybe plays into what can other times be weaknesses where we're having this conversation but there's an internal dialogue writing notes about content or ideas or separate conversations one, one thing is it's a real pet hate of people. Came up a lot in asking people, what's the, the smallest thing that you hate? And it was slow walkers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a slow walker. Uh. Um, I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm thinking about stuff like that when I'm thinking. Because I'm the sort of person that's like, I don't understand why you're in such a hurry. I just leave earlier and I take my time to get there. And my brain is, my brain is never silent. I've never had that. Feeling. I asked people recently, I only found out in the last year or two that some people don't have an internal dialogue. I'm like, what the hell do you mean? Like, what, <laughs> that, that seems like bliss. But maybe it's like a hidden strength that there's, even though I don't want it to be most of the time, there's this second voice yeah. shouting these ideas at me while I'm trying to do something else. I think there's that, but I think the other thing, and you'll underplay it and you'll get awkward for me saying it, is like there's obviously one that you're just actually just a very good writer and not everyone is a naturally good writer. 
And the other one is that you've dedicated a whole bunch of time to doing it, right? So if you do something regularly all the time, you're going to get better at it. It's going to take you less time. It's going to be easier. It's become, going back to what you were saying before this, it's going to become habit. I guess it's just, it's the barrier to getting started probably stops most people. And that's where I'm throwing myself in. Where actually, if I just started doing it, when I have an idea and writing it down, don't have to do anything with it. When you build that habit, it's just going to get better and you'll get better as you go, right? So I think the problem yeah. is you started and you stuck with it. And that's, you know, that's you. And I think the reason I stuck with it is because I read that the LinkedIn algorithm rewards consistency. And these algorithms are the bane of the world. Oh, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People have asked me and even in my team as well, so I'm thinking about maybe doing some training on it to help our team. But at the start for anyone, it does feel like you've walked into a pub and you're just yelling. Yeah. No one's really paying attention. And it does feel really awkward, but sort of again to that sort of strength I've developed in my older years is I just don't fear that awkwardness or that maybe to a degree I do because if I had a lot of time, I'd probably do it on other platforms. Like I'd love to make content on YouTube and, and that sort of stuff in different ways. Uh, not necessarily like me talking, but just making other sort of content. But that first one is is hard. The first one's like, I'm going to look stupid here. Like, I'm going to go on TikTok and <laughs> X, Y, and Z. So it, I definitely agree. It's hard. I, now I couldn't even tell you what the first yeah. post was. And it was probably very, these are the jobs I'm recruiting for. And it started that way. Then another first time I pushed the boat out and tried humour or, I don't know, every time I've sort of said something, you know, geez, this one, I feel a bit unsafe about this. Yeah. They tend to be the ones where I get the most responses saying, I, oh, I've always thought this, yeah. They'll be the good ones because if it's slightly controversial like anything, right, you'll get, you'll get the opposite opinions and people will want to speak up or they'll want to jump in or whatever it is. Yeah, that's always Yeah, I've tried to avoid the, I mean, there's a real easy sort of content strategy of just say controversial things because the engagement will be really high. I think I'm too argumentative a person. I think I would just get on <laughs> all day. But I also think there's controversy for controversy's sake, right? And if, if what you're doing most of the time is just adding value and it's quite funny and topical, but there's the odd one that sparks a little bit of debate, then I think that's a good thing and people will engage with it for that reason. But I think if that was a strategy, I think you'd almost lose that engagement as you went because it's like, oh, this is, you know, this is here to get a reaction. When I tend to see them, they tend to be one-offs. Like I, I saw one recently, there was a guy saying the other day that all millennials were lazy and he has financial freedom because he works a million hours a week mm. blah 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 and it was just like what, what are you trying to achieve anyway looking at time i'm going to ask you two more actual podcast questions um, <laughs> what do you think has been the best and worst career advice you've received uh, the worst career advice that comes to mind in recruitment was being told that in you have to be, your clients have to like you to work with you. And by that, it was in, framed as socially like you. So, you know, your client, you go out for drinks, you see each other on the weekends. And listen, I want to have good relationships with those clients, but I wanted my work and life to be separate. And then the people sort of giving me this advice, most of their clients who were friends were shit clients, bad payers, fallouts negotiated terms, free replacements. Like, yeah, you've got a lot of clients who are your friends, but you make like a negative return on them. Where if I've got clients who we mutually respect each other and when we interact, it's good and we might do a work lunch every once in a while, but we're not texting each other on the weekends to you know, 
go to the footy. So I took the approach of I'm just going to try to be really good at the service that I deliver and not try to be people's best friend. That worked well for, for me. The best advice that I've had, maybe that's a poor reflection on me that I haven't listened to anyone's. <laughs> or maybe it's a positive reflection and the fact that you've maybe listened to it but you've not taken it all on board and you've worked things out for kind of the situation that it is. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I did, like my parents weren't pushing me into any sort of career or anything like that. There's a couple of managers that come to mind. I don't know if there's one guy in particular, manager, I feel like it wasn't so much advice where it was more just a gentle sort of push, the one that sort of said that you should manage, you know, people. Whereas had it not been for him in that sort of scenario, I may well have just continued on the just a recruiter. I'm just going to build, go home, you know. He's like, to develop, you should do this and this is what's happening. So it wasn't so much advice but more just a, a push in a direction that I probably wouldn't have chosen myself. All right, last question because we've got four minutes. What else's career story would you like to hear from? I think as many people I sort of look at from afar, probably more people I know. I don't know if she's been in the podcast already, but my old boss, Issa Nonemans, she's now head of people, chief people officer at Airtasker. Issa's very, very good in what she does. She worked in some scale-ups, you know, back at Google and Spotify and just seen some really interesting things. She spoke at the UN on gender diversity and wow. things like that. Yeah, so she's um, got a really impressive career and CV but has remained extremely down-to-earth and level-headed and no arrogance. Maybe I shouldn't insinuate that people with those CVs always have arrogance, but yeah, at that sort of, yeah, at that sort of seniority, one of the most approachable you know, supportive people. And I probably never got the chance to really, you know, go deep into, I interviewed her. <laughs> so I knew the, the career, but not the full extent of it. I love that. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Sure. Want to know more about how to get ahead? Be sure to check out striving.io for career development tools and mentorships to guide you through. Striving and thriving. 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 Striving and thriving.